Today, we speak with Dr. Miranda Orr, Associate Professor of Gerontology and Geriatric Medicine at the School of Medicine, Wake Forest University. We delve into Dr. Orr's groundbreaking research on the impact of tau accumulation on cellular senescence. Additionally, we explored the remarkable insights gained from employing Geomics DSP and Cosmics SMI spatial technologies, which have proven invaluable in deepening the understanding of degenerative diseases. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Dr. Orr, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. It's such a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, Jonathan. Could I get perhaps your journey to being a researcher and perhaps your motivation as to why Alzheimer's disease? I have a very personal connection with Alzheimer's disease. When I was in high school, my maternal grandmother started losing her memory and started having behavioral changes that didn't get better. And she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the year that I graduated from college, she passed away. And as a young adult, seeing all of these amazing treatments for so many diseases, but that there was nothing that could help my grandma really inspired me to dedicate my career towards trying to better understand the disease with the hopes of helping find treatments for Alzheimer's. So perhaps that's been your mission into trying to eradicate Alzheimer's disease and and in order to do that, to understand the disease? Yeah, absolutely. She is my motivation every single day in the lab. I actually have pictures of her in nearly every single one of my presentations. Perhaps you could walk us through how you did research on the brain before spatial. To an extent, we've always done spatial, but it's been low plex. So in Alzheimer's disease and a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, they arise from protein aggregation. So one of the gold standard experiments that you will see in in so many publications is histology, looking for the pathology whether or not that's A-beta-plaques, neurofibrillary tangles, which is what my lab focuses on, markers of inflammation, all of these things, antibody-based in a tissue. So to an extent, we've always done spatial, but we've never had the capacity to do such high-plex spatial and with such fine resolution. And in a sense, was there any was there much exposure perhaps to the RNA side as you were talking about low-plex protein before? Yeah, absolutely. So... As, as I just mentioned with uh, neurodegenerative diseases arising from protein aggregation, while all of these advances were being made with RNA sequencing and then single cell and single nucleus RNA sequencing, huge, huge advancements in our field. But at the end of the day, we always wanted to know, were there differences in cells that had tau pathology versus those that didn't? And that really requires a protein marker. And so even though we had all of this wonderful information on RNA-seq, being able to identify which cells might be have the pathogenic tau and which cells don't, that information for a long time, we didn't have ways to, to pair those things. As we progressed in that research, different scientists, including um, computational biologists on my team, tried to cleverly get around that pitfall by developing, by using laser capture microdissection, for example, and getting transcriptional profiles of these cells, and then using that information and applying it to larger RNA sequencing data sets and single cell sequencing data sets. So there's always been a a desire to understand transcriptional profiles of cells with 
strange protein markers. But until spatial, we had we had to do a lot of clever workarounds. That's another question or something that I've always wondered, I suppose, like when we look at genomics, you can tell a person's disposition, but RNA sort of as RNA and protein presence suggests activity and progression or regulation, perhaps. When we compare RNA to protein, how much is really flowing down or sometimes is it sort of like a red herring of sorts? That's a great question. And there are a lot of um, investigators looking at the concordance between gene and protein expression. And maybe surprisingly or not, for a lot of analytes, they do not have strong concordance. Some of them uh, that are anchored in membranes or receptors seem to have a greater translation between transcript and, and protein. But, you know, signaling molecules, a lot of them are secreted, proteins that accumulate, there's really no way to account for that at the transcriptional level. And actually in what we're seeing in neurons that have tau pathology, so if you look at them at the protein level, they have all of this tau protein, but transcriptionally, they've already downregulated it. So if you if you're looking at gene expression, you're going to get a different impression than if you're looking at protein expression. So having them both is really crucial to understanding what that cell is doing. I guess for a researcher not well versed in either the brain or, or in new degenerative diseases, could you explain tau pathology? Tau pathology, it is incredibly complex. And tau, so tau protein is encoded by a single copy gene called microtubule-associated protein tau. That gene undergoes alternative splicing. So you get six different protein isoforms in the brain. Actually, there's some research showing that there's another one. And then after that, tau can be incredibly modified by post-translational events. Phosphorylation is one that's really studied in the brain because over or excessive tau phosphorylation leads to protein accumulation and misfolding of the protein, and then it, it starts to accumulate. And we primarily look at tau pathology in the context of Alzheimer's disease, but tau protein accumulates in dozens of neurodegenerative diseases. And one area of research that we're interested in, and a lot of our collaborators and others in the field, how much of the cell stress response differs across these neurodegenerative diseases and how much is the same because the diseases present differently behaviorally, cognitively, different brain regions are affected. But if you use a single antibody, the cells look the same. And that's one of the ways that we're really applying uh, spatial profiling to, to answer that question. So, how, sorry, this is a, I guess this is a question out of curiosity. When you said single antibody, does that single antibody attach to all different isoforms of the tau, which is why they look the same? Or would, is there a clever way to sort of like differentiate the antibody enough that they find each different isoform? Also a great question. So the single antibody that I was referring to, it, it's called AT8, and it recognizes very specific phosphorylation sites on tau. And that one has been used as a surrogate to mark neurofibrillary tangles, which are insoluble aggregates that accumulate in a lot of brain diseases. But there are dozens of epitopes on tau that can be phosphorylated. That, that antibody doesn't recognize them all. And then getting to your question of isoforms, there are antibodies that can detect some of the different isoforms, but we cannot, with antibodies, we cannot detect each isoform independently. And that's because of the way that it 
is alternatively spliced. And then another term that comes up in a lot of your research is senescence. Cellular senescence is a complex stress response, and it is one of the hallmarks of aging. So the biology of aging field has identified fundamental cellular and molecular processes that change in cells as organisms grow older, but they don't just co-occur, they actually drive aging. And we say that because when these hallmarks of aging appear, there is an increase in pathology, there is a decrease in function. And um, now that some of these hallmarks have been identified, there's an opportunity to intervene upon them. And if they're intervened upon correctly, you can prolong healthy lifespan. So cellular senescence is one of these hallmarks of aging. And it is a complex stress response where the cell, after undergoing damage, oftentimes it's DNA damage that drives this process, the cells don't die. They do upregulate apoptotic pathways, but they also upregulate pro-survival pathways that actually win. So they allow this stressed, damaged cell to survive. And these cells really can't die. And they need to be cleared from the body by the immune system. They do secrete a lot of molecules to signal the immune system to clear them. They secrete a lot of things in general. So pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, extracellular matrix remodeling proteins, exosomes, all of these things that change their microenvironment. And if they're not cleared, these changes to the microenvironment often leads to the death of nearby healthy, otherwise healthy cells, or it can transform healthy cells to become senescent and propagate this damage. And the reason why we got really interested in cellular senescence is because in Alzheimer's disease, the neurons that have aggregates of tau or neurofibrillary tangles, arguably they are some of the cells with the highest level of stress in the brain, but they don't die. Um, there's been studies predicting that they survive decades in the brain in humans in really elegant mouse experiments. It has been conclusively shown if you track the same tangle over time, the tangle really doesn't die. So it's not as though a cell accumulates this massive amount of tau and then the apoptosis, it actually doesn't. And interestingly, the more tangles there are in a brain, the worse the neurodegeneration and the worse the dementia. So the tangle is a marker of, you know, something is going wrong, but those cells don't die which is so similar to what happens with senescent cells. What my lab started investigating is, could these neurons of tangles actually be senescent and contributing to pathogenesis and dysfunction in a way similar to senescent cells and other tissues? Could we first start with the initial geomics work that you've done? Yes. So because senescence is a complicated stress response that changes a cell fate, and it involves not only the cell that's damaged, but how it is impacting its environment. To really study this, we need instrumentation that can answer a few things, really important things. One is spatial. What's happening with the cell and its microenvironment? And the second one that's really important at really high plex, because there is no single marker that can conclusively identify a senescent cell. I mentioned that we use AT8, the Alzheimer's field often uses one antibody AT8 to recognize neurons of tangles. We don't have a similar marker to identify senescent cells. So one of the first experiments before even or running simultaneous with our genomics publication is we were using data from single nucleus RNA sequencing 
to see if we could identify analytes that would reflect senescence. And to do this, we had to start with very large, we started with very large panels and used a lot of bioinformatics. And after those experiments, we had narrowed down a list of over a hundred genes, ranked them, looked at our top ranking one, determined whether or not it was expressed in the brain differentially in Alzheimer's and controls, and then determined whether or not the gene actually encoded a protein that also is differentially expressed. And once we had that, then we could start translating that back to tissue and determining whether or not cells with this particular marker really looked to be senescent. And so as we were doing the bioinformatics simultaneously, we were getting uh, geomics up and running in the lab. And so our initial strategy with geomics was to profile neurons from postmortem human brain that had tau pathology. So they had this marker AT8 so they had tangles and neighboring neurons from the same subject's brain that didn't have tangles and asked a very simple question beyond phosphotau, are there fundamental differences between cells with and without pathology? And are there fundamental differences in the microenvironment of cells with and without tau pathology? And we did that in individuals that had dementia and individuals that had the same level of tau pathology, but did not have dementia. And that was the experimental design for our first geomics publication. I suppose based on your findings, what were the key contributing factors to, in your words, cognitive resilience in individuals with uh, AD, but no dementia in, in that sense? This was our first uh, publication on geomics. And so it was incredibly reassuring and exciting when we saw that the same markers that had been identified in these brains using a completely different method. One of our co-authors, uh, Giulio Tegliatella, he had used um, frozen tissue from these same brains, did beautiful biochemical work, and found there was differences in synapses between individuals that had similar tau pathology but were, were resilient or susceptible to the pathology. When we did spatial using those same exact brains, one of the biggest hits that came out was synaptic integrity. And so I think as scientists start to adopt new technologies, some of these gut check experiments are so important. So that finding in and of itself wasn't revolutionary. It had been already published, but what we were able to find in that study with spatial is that it didn't matter if the cells had pathology or not, there was a loss of synaptic integrity in individuals that were susceptible to the pathology. So even cells in the brain that did not have pathology, they had lower synaptophysin expression, which is a marker of synaptic integrity. So it wasn't, it's not just the neurons with pathology. It is also neurons without pathology. So that is how spatial really added to that finding. What are some benefits and challenges working with postmortem brain tissue? When we get the brains and we're evaluating them in the lab, all times when we're looking at a postmortem brain, it is a snapshot in time. Oftentimes that snapshot is at the very end of potentially a long disease process that may have occurred over decades. And we're looking at the aftermath. This is, you know, after cells and the tissue has really tried to combat whatever disease process was happening. Those processes may have failed. Other processes may have started. They failed. It's really hard to know the precise timing that happened in that individual um, throughout their life. However, that information is absolutely critical in even knowing where to start. 
it gives you some guidepost that at the end of all of this process, we know that these things are present and they're very reproducible. When you look at, you know, hundreds of brains or thousands of brains, you can see some of these gold standard pathologies among all of them. And then in my lab, we rely very heavily also on rodent models, particularly transgenic mice, to try to understand that progression. And, you know, there are limitations with animal models, clearly. But the Alzheimer's field in particular, we have the advantage of having a lot of different mouse models available. So when you identify something, at least our lab strategy, when we identify something in the brain, in the human brain, that we think is really important, then we can look to the Alzheimer's field in general and see what mice might be most appropriate to study that and then start experimenting on the mice and develop experiments that have a time course to determine when is the onset of this process? How does it change throughout the mouse's lifespan? And at the end of the experiment and look at that mouse's brain, does it recapitulate what we saw in the human brain or not? I have a follow-up question. There are two follow-up questions to what you shared. I suppose, is there a distinction of how long tangles have been there? Is that measured by the level of pathology in, in, in a way, sort of like you see more degeneration in that area or are they difficult to distinguish? Very difficult to distinguish. I have had a lot of conversations trying with you know experts in the field, colleagues, lab mates throughout my career. How can we birth date a tangle? Computer models have suggested that, that tangles are present in the brain for decades. Of course, we can't track them in people. Tracking them in mice is achievable by using cranial windows, dyeing those neurons with tangles, and imaging those same cells over and over and over again, seeing that they don't die. We ran an experiment that I'm really excited to look at the data. We haven't had a chance yet to analyze those tissues where we are able to turn a tau transgene on and off for different periods of time, whenever we want in the mouse's life. And so the question we wanna know, if we turn the transgene on early in life, long enough for a tangle to form, and then we turn it off, and euthanize the mouse years later, is the tangle still there? If the tangle is still there, we know it had to form years earlier. If it's not there, then we can infer that either the cell died yeah. or something cleared the tangle. So we, it is a curiosity that we are very, very interested in trying to answer that question. But it's in a postmortem brain, you don't know. And then the next question I had was relating to the mouse. When you select a mouse, are you sort of committed to what sort of one branch and sort of foregoing the rest? I suppose you could use other mice, but then that racks up experimental cost and time and perhaps raising the other mice. Yes, the short answer is yes. So it really depends on what you want to study. There have been attempts and actual successes in making mice that have plaques and tangles by adding in different levels of transgenes and different types of transgenes. And they also develop inflammation. Interestingly, they don't have neurodegeneration. So that piece is somewhat curious. In other mice, you can get tau pathology and neurodegeneration. Of course, then you don't have the A-beta plaques unless you use another model to superimpose them. And that's what we are able to to do that is really the strategy that we use in the lab is superimposing pathologies because mice don't naturally develop any of these. And 
we have a lot of discussion and I think it's important to acknowledge the strengths and limitations of the model. And that's really the best that we can do. Since we're on things like experimental design, what is your guide to asking good questions of tissue and perhaps generating spatial questions? Well, I suppose the brain is a spatial organ to begin with, or more intuitively a spatial uh, organ than others. But yeah, how do you come up with good questions? So our strategy to ask questions that can be answered with tissue is really thinking through the experimental design so there are very good controls. Especially when we're looking at human cases, there is incredible contribution of each person's genetic background. And if you compare two cases, brains from two individuals that passed away from what clinicians may have thought was the same stage of disease, they're the same age, the same sex, the same gender, the same race, all of those things, even when you account for all of that, there are differences in their genetics that can contribute to different results in the lab. So we always include a paired analysis of within tissue analysis. So always looking at cells within the same tissue with or without pathology in the same region, because even though we might say, you know, my lab studies neurons, there are dozens of different subtypes of neurons that differ significantly in their molecular makeup based on anatomically where they're located. So it's really important also to make sure that you're comparing the same type of neuron. And some of the most important criteria are making sure that you're taking into account as many variables as possible. You try and keep as many things similar as possible, but perhaps would you say that asking one differing question between the two bits is helpful because I think if you come in with too many questions then it gets more complicated or in a sense one differing characteristic perhaps. Yeah and I think you know prior to hyplex spatial biology the questions inherently had to be simple because we just didn't have the capacity to look at the whole transcriptome at spatial resolution or hundreds of proteins at spatial resolution. And so, you know, prior to um, adopting some of these uh, spatial platforms, particularly geomics and cosmics, our question, we would design an experiment and our outcome that we wanted to know was simple. Are there more or less neurons with pathology? That, that could be the one question, just are there more or less? Now, because we can answer so many more questions, it's not just numbers, but does the molecular makeup of these neurons that are that are remaining at this particular time point, do they look different? And that gets into, you have all of these genes to look at or all of these proteins to look at. And if you're not careful going in and saying, you know, I, I'm really interested in this neuronal module. I want to look at synaptic integrity. I want to look at dendritic integrity. I want to look at axonal integrity. And that is going to be our primary focus. It's easy to get distracted by all of the other data that you're also collecting. But I will say that having fantastic computational biologists on the team is really making understanding these large data sets possible. Because somebody like me that my science training was really low plex spatial. Now having all of this data, I can say the first time that, that we saw it, it 
was more than overwhelming. It was, I mean, I thought I knew what I was going to be getting in the data set. And then when you actually see it, you kind of forget what was, why did I do this? Like, what was the main question that I, I was wanting to ask? And I think always bringing it back to that, what is the question that we wanted to address with this experiment? And then a lot of other things can be hypothesis generating for the next experiment and do more targeted analyses as well. I, I suppose now's a great time to talk about cosmics. And could I get your thoughts or how you felt when you first saw the data that came out of the cosmics, as well as perhaps when you first heard about the cosmics? When I first heard about the cosmics, I wanted to do it immediately. Like I wanted to do a cosmics experiment because I wanted to be able to visualize all of the analytes on the tissue. So with geomics, you don't get images of all, all of the transcripts. They are counts that you can't visually see back on the tissue. You have your morphology stain on the tissue, but you can't see them. And I wanted to see them. I think there's just something about that. Is it tangible? So I wanted that. And also the resolution, you know, less than 50 nanometers or about 50 nanometer resolution was just incredibly exciting to me and trying to, I really wanted to see what was happening to a neuron with a tangle, a senescent cell and its environment and just looking at everything all at once. So I thought that I knew what the data would look like. I had this, I anticipated a certain thing. And then when we first saw, when I first saw the data, it was mind blowing on really every level. And I, I had to shut my computer and just sit with that data for a couple of weeks to, before even coming back and looking at it because it was overwhelming. Um, suddenly you see, you know, dozens of different cell types mapped onto the brain. And our initial experiment was comparing a wild type mouse and an age matched tau transgenic mouse and looking at how not only cell types changed and some of those were you know again gut check we know there should be fewer neurons in the presence of tauopathy we know there should be higher um, gliosis in the presence of tauopathy we knew those things and they came out so that was very reassuring but then when we started looking at spatial niches and seeing how those changed between genotypes between you know a disease and a, and a healthy and not only seeing the changes but knowing what cells were involved in those niches and not only knowing what cells were involved in those niches, but the genes that those cells should be expressing if they would have remained. And I really, in that moment, started rethinking how I was going to do each experiment moving forward, because in that single experiment, I learned more about the model that I study in that one experiment than I had in the past 10 years of every experiment that I had done. And so just thinking about, you know, designing an experiment so well up front that you don't need as many mice anymore because you don't need serial sections to look at all of these analytes. And eventually you run out of a mouse brain, especially if you're looking at a very specific region. So it's really important to be able to get as much information as you can. But yeah, it was, I would say the one word is overwhelming and there's the Nanostring has their, is it Oh Wow campaign? Yep, that's a campaign. Yeah. And I was joking with them that the pic the picture of the individual on their Oh Wow campaign didn't really capture my experience. <laughs> they seem very like... Very happy, less less overwhelmed. 
Yeah. And that was not my face. And, and it wasn't because I wasn't absolutely excited about what I saw, but it was hard to really compute it in my brain that this is now the level of data that I have the capacity to look at. And then what do you do with it? Yeah. Two questions come out or three, actually. I think you mentioned there was a preconceived notion of what the data would look like. Could you drill down into how exactly they differed between what you thought you were going to see versus what you did see? Yeah, this go- I think this goes back to one of our earlier discussion points on disciplining yourself to go back to what you initially wanted to look at, because it can be very distracting. And that's not to say that there isn't good science to be understood there. But so I did the experiment because I wanted to be able to visualize as many genes as possible within our senescence eigengenes simultaneously on each cell so I could more confidently make a call whether or not the cell was senescent. Because in our field, there's still a lot of work to be done to truly identify confidently every time you're looking at a tissue, is the cell senescent or not? Um, it's an incredibly complex stress response that the cell is changing cell fate and we're looking at a snapshot in time. How do you know if it is or is not? And so what I wanted to do is look at those select genes, see which cells were up regulating those select genes and look at how that was impacting their environment. So look at, find those cells and their environment. So we did that, but also when we were putting these transcripts on and doing different transcript overlays, we were seeing really rare cells popping out that we had no idea what they were. They were just, it would be a few here and there speckled through the brain and looking at their transcriptional profile. I would have never, probably never stumbled upon these cells using any other platform because you would have to know what you're looking for and look at a lot of tissue to find them. And so as we started doing this different transcript overlay, we, our questions, just questions kept emerging and kind of lost sight for a while why we were initially doing this and reining ourselves back in to the fundamental question that we wanted to know, can we identify senescent cells now? And what does their environment look at, look like? Because every single person in my lab that has looked at the data has come up with dozens of new projects that they want to explore, which we can, and that's great, but it, it can get really overwhelming. That's that's something I wrote I wrote down as you said it. I was like, is your attention getting sort of drawn away where like you came with an objective, but you see all these different like flowers by the side of the road and you want to go pick them up, smell them see where where the path of the flowers lead but yeah as you said i think you got to remember what the mission the main mission was could i ask what eigengenes were spiked in because i remember you mentioned there were about a hundred that you had identified with a computational biologist did you have difficulty to choose what was it the 50 that you were able to spike in so the the ones that were included i did have conversations with nanostring r&d which nanostring reaches out to a lot of scientists across the world and, you know, trying not only using their computational data, but also asking scientists, what analytes do you want in the panel? And so we had some discussions making sure that some of our favorite genes were included in there. And there are, there are some limitations. So for example, one of our favorite genes is expressed at really low levels. So that's not a great gene to include in the panel. But how we work around that is then we instead use that as a morphology marker. But across 
among the over 100 genes that spanned all three of our eigengenes, there was representation of at least five genes in each of our three eigengenes. And some of the eigengenes had as many, I think maybe 15 genes included. And so then what we did is every single gene that was re represented in our human eigengene, we did visually look at that in on the mouse brain. Okay, so what's the next goal? Is it validation of what you found? Is it a deeper dive into, into the senescence that you've identified? Or would you say, perhaps, as, as you mentioned, some of the members of your lab have all these questions that they're postulating, is it to... To branch out and and perhaps investigate those. So validation is incredibly important, and that is something that we spend a lot of time doing. And not only in our lab, but independently validating it in other labs. So we ask uh, collaborators at different institutions whether or not you know can you just check this antibody in this tissue just to make sure that it is um, validated. So that's really really important, just and especially as you know, Cosmix was just launched, I mean, less than, well, maybe it's been a year by now, but the official launch was not that long ago. And so individual labs are just now getting them. And so I think that there does need to be a level of validation. And I think scientists are pretty good at that. We want to, we want to make sure that these new technologies are really giving us the data that we can trust. And I can say, you know, some of the TAOs, all of the TAOs are you know, the nuts and bolts of our lab, the bread and butter, we validate them. Looking at cell types that change have been already valid in this way. Cosmix was actually validating what we had already seen or vice versa. It was consistent. So there is a lot of validation that we're doing using the information and seeing how similar or not it is to, to what is happening in human brain, because we want to know whether or not this particular tau transgenic mouse that we're using is going to be best to model senescence that we are actually targeting now clinically, or should we look for a different model? Because translation is the ultimate goal of our lab. Whatever we discover, we want to, to make every effort to move it to clinic as quickly as possible. And so those are the, the immediate main drivers or goals of the lab. I tell everybody in the lab, so when, you know, when new students come in or rotating and they may want a project on vasculature or microglia. I tell them, I also think all of those biologies are very interesting, but the focus of our lab is neurons, tau, and senescence. So I think just keeping that focus, it is really important to me because I just do not have the bandwidth <laughs> to branch out too much. And we have fantastic collaborators and there are other labs doing amazing research that can help answer those questions that we also think are exciting, but just not really our expertise. And, you know, sometimes we're just not the best people to answer an interesting question. I think everybody's attention in the same way that when you see discoveries in, in your data sort of draw your attention away with the public's attention all on cosmics and perhaps shying away from or perhaps people mistakenly thinking they they have no need for the DSP. How do you see the two instruments working in tandem with one another? And where do they sit in perhaps your workflow? We The DSP, the Geomics DSP yes. is the workhorse in our lab. It is running around the clock and we love it. It is a scientist's instrument. It is, you have a hypothesis, you test it. It actually helps you 
maintain that focus because you are not imaging the entire tissue. You are asking the question, you're trying to answer the question that you set out to ask. And so, you know, fundamentally, there is a lot to be learned about the header in pathology. You asked earlier, you know, are all of these tangles the same? That's a question that we also want to know. And so we select neurons with tangles across the brain, specific brain regions, and repeat that on multiple cases and with geomics. It may be tempting to, to run them on Cosmics once it's installed next week, but and you would get great information, you would get incredible information and generate many more hypotheses. But at the end of the day, if we want to know what is cellular heterogeneity, what are the analytes that are most different between neurons and tangles? Can we stage them? Are there specific analytes that correlate better with dementia? Are there specific analytes that correlate better with senescence progression? That's really a geomics question. One of the first experiments that I cannot wait to run on Cosmics is comparing mice that have received senolytic therapy. So senolytics are pharmacological agents that selectively clear senescent cells from the brain. So we we did we do a lot of these interventions in mice, wild type mice, tau transgenic mice, collect their brains, and you know, look, have have we changed tau pathology? But now knowing that we have the capacity with cosmics to look at niche changes, that is one of the first experiments we're going to do, because I think for doing drug studies, you know, target engagement is one thing. Did your drug hit the target? But you also want to know how were all of the other cells affected? You know, and it might be subtle changes. I think it will be subtle changes. And that's a cosmics question. If you just want to know how is this drug broadly changing the entire tissue? And then from that, we will develop hypotheses, you know, maybe refine the treatment and but then, you know, when we, we have identified interesting cells, we're going to take that back to geomics and probe in, probe in on those interesting cells. Yeah. Actually, as you were saying, how drugs affect other cells, that's the same thing we hear with very broad chemotherapy, how the cell transcript changes post-treatment and how that can affect uh, even recurrence. I absolutely, I think probably what I am most excited about Cosmics for us is drug discovery and translational neuroscience because we it is so hard to know what is happening in the brain in in people when you give these these drugs obviously we're not going to have postmortem brains from people that are in our trial but at least understanding maybe what are some markers that we should be paying attention to in our trial you know if we see certain cell types that are really reacting to the treatment there may be released molecules that we can identify in the, the plasma or in the spinal fluid to give us insights. Was How effective was the drug? Is it having off-target effects that are detrimental? Or is it really more as specific as we would like to see? Can you speculate on how your findings can could be transposed into the study of other neurodegenerative diseases like ALS or PD? Yeah, we have a study a large study funded by the VA, the the uh, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, to look at cellular senescence in veterans that passed away with ALS. And it's really interesting because we identified that senescence could be involved, and specifically TDP43, which is a protein 
that deposits yes. that that might be involved in senescence by experimenting on our postmortem Alzheimer's brains, but TDP43 and phospho-TDP43 are in the geomics panel that we were looking at. And when we had our new marker of senescence and we were looking at neurons and Alzheimer's disease, comparing them to cells that weren't senescent from the same brain, we saw differences in TDP43. And so we wondered whether this pro whether protein accumulation and proteinopathy in general might drive a senescent stress response. So that's one application that we're looking at. We're also really interested in cell vulnerable, how different cells are vulnerable to different pathologies and different diseases. So comparing the same brain region across multiple diseases, some affected and some are not affected, uh, why does that happen? In regards to Parkinson's disease, I already have a couple collaborations that we've started looking at it because they are there, they have the same question, you know, does alpha synuclein cells with alpha synuclein, how do cells with alpha synuclein deposits look different at the molecular level than cells without? So it's really cut copy paste your disease of interest, your pathology of interest, and it's very translatable, I think. It really sounds like the cosmics that is going to be installed on Monday is going to be really stacked with experiments. Yes, and we have we have a board, and um, I have a very talented program manager, where we have listed all of our projects, all of our collaborative projects, and prioritized based on you know funding cycle, those sorts of things, to make sure that we stay on track. Because as scientists, when we see something interesting, it's very easy to shift focus and explore something. Um, but it's also very important to make sure you're staying on track and answering the initial exciting questions that you had and and do that well before wandering off into new areas. This is a question that was inspired by a friend of mine who is a, a neuroscientist in Singapore. As a scientist who looks at the brain a lot, how do you think spatial technologies can work around the constraints of of the brain, particularly when you're looking at perhaps very long neurons that perhaps don't even fit on a slide? How would you go around those constraints? It is a constraint that we acknowledge. I mean, it. there is no single method that can circumnavigate the complexity and how intertwined these cells are and how large they are. There's nothing that can do that currently. But I think that's where it, it becomes really important to use complementary methods. So you know, having a geomics or a cosmics tissue where it's five microns thick and you're profiling that, but have a thicker section from an adjacent section or another subject or another mouse where you can do confocal. So once you have identified some interesting things on geomics or cosmics, then you can apply them, use another uh, platform to understand how uniform or different this is throughout the, the cell because it does not make a lot of sense in terms of resources to do every single section of a mouse brain on cosmics or geomics. There are other methods that can be applied that when you pair them with geomics and cosmics make the most sense. So that's how, how we're approaching it. What would you say is an underrated resource that researchers have for experimental design? And in this a similar vein, what pitfall would you warn an investigator looking to do spatial against? I think that 
using existing data sets is incredibly helpful, useful, and informative. There are so many large multi-owned data sets that exist now. And for example, you know, just speaking about neuroscience, the Allen Brain Institute, they have incredible resources available to neuroscientists to look at. So I think it's really, at least for us, we are so appreciative of those resources because we can start asking our question or at least validating our or gaining evidence that our hypothesis is worth testing by looking at all of the data that has already been generated by scientists in the field. So I think that sometimes there may be scientists may feel compelled to just do the experiment right off on their own. And I don't think that's always necessarily needed. I do think it's important that if this is the hypothesis you're testing, that you get the same data in your lab before continuing it. But I I do think that using publicly available data sets and resources is potentially underutilized. That that may not be true. That I, I feel that from just my experience with, you know, my research network. And then in terms of cautioning other investigators, I think for us once, and we've talked about this a lot, the vastness of data that are generated from these spatial instruments, it can be very easy to get distracted and and look at other things and we're guilty of that too. I mean we we are sitting on a lot of data that we need to publish. But you just keep finding new things and keep trying to add that into the story. And I I think for these spatial platforms that there is going to be a little bit of lag time where biologists like myself that are not as accustomed to seeing these large data sets really figure out how to formulate the manuscripts because there are literally book chapters worth of data in every single experiment and identifying, again, it all comes back to what was the question you set out to answer and answer that and leave everything else for the next story. And that just takes a lot of, I think, discipline and good collaborations with impticians and computational biologists. So it's really fun, but it's also I think there are daunting challenges that we never anticipated. We just yeah. thought that we would answer all of the questions and then move on. Articulating them in a manuscript um, when you have four terabytes of data is challenging. Yeah, yeah. It's almost as if you could come up with a new publication with every figure that you have, perhaps. You could. I mean, and you could I you could write grants on I there are endless numbers of grant applications, new projects that can be started with a single cosmics data set and all interesting and worthwhile, worth pursuing. And I I don't even know what publications are going to look like in as little as three years from now. You know, it's already, yeah, it, I don't know how they can fit in a journal. I think there's going to be, you know, exceedingly more and more online and just a select few figures actually in a print journal. How do you see spatial biology shaping present and future disease research? Well, I think it, at least for us, it already has. I would say the first three to six months after getting our initial Cosmics data set, I started rethinking my lab structure, how we do research in my lab. It has impacted everything from, you know, the personnel that I needed before and I need now. So, you know, less 
technical help running the experiments, more computational help on the back end, downsizing the mouse colony. We, because we can analyze the whole transcriptome in a single brain section, there's not a need for so many um, mice to just profile all of the different things that we want to look at. Of course, it's ex important for biological replicates, but you know, there's no, we're not going to run out of tissue now, which was a concern before, especially when you're looking, you know, at a really rare subpopulation in the brain, you need to be able to get as much information from that as possible. So everything from, you know, the structure of in my lab to the questions that we want to answer, it, it has already changed my lab. And so how this will continue to change in the future, I have, I have what I think is going to happen. I, as I mentioned, I don't know what publications are going to start looking like in the next three years, but I think textbooks literally will be rewritten. We now have this depth of molecular data on each cell sitting next to one another, how it could change how we define cell types and cell states and cell fates. Do we have more cells than we ever initially thought, which the Allen Institute is finding new cells all the time. I think it's going to really revolutionize our field. And I think it already is, actually. I mean, at least in my lab, it has made a huge impact already. I think that's a fantastic place to, to end the episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Orr, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostream. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings, or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.